All right, we're already off to a good start. It's going to be a good morning. Hey, we're starting a new series called Advice to My Younger Self. And the idea of this series is that every speaker that comes up each week is going to get to talk about something they're really passionate about. And basically the way we're framing this is if we were to talk to our younger selves, if I were to talk to my 20-year-old self, what would I tell that guy? And hopefully each week you're going to hear something a little different because every speaker that's up here, next week is going to be Ryan and then after that Tom and Beth, you're going to hear something a little different, a little bit of what they're passionate about, what they would tell their younger selves and the advice that they would give. And and so hopefully by the end of this series, we will all glean something from it. Here's the idea. If you were to visit your younger self, and maybe you can think about this question on your own. If you were to visit your younger self, what is the main thing you'd want to tell yourself about a life of following Jesus? If you were to sit down with your younger self, what would you say? One of the things I would say is what I'm going to talk about this morning. There is more. And I would say it just like that because I would want my younger self to look confused and then ask, what in the world do you mean? And so let me explain a little bit. I love how C.S. Lewis says this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And so I would sit down with my 20-year-old self and I would say... Mark, it's not that your desires are too strong. It's that they're too weak. And I would want to crank up your desires to the point where they desire the best, the most, the thing that God has for you, and not just mess around with mud pies. Here's how the Apostle Paul said it. In 2 Corinthians 3, he said, But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now, the NIV translates that as ever-increasing glory. And I was raised to think that the the process of, of growing in Christ, of looking more and more like Jesus, is a very gradual one over time. And there's truth in that. But in the Greek, it actually says this, from glory to glory. So while it's true that the discipleship process, the process of becoming more like Jesus, is a gradual one, it also at times jumps from glory to glory. I'd want to sit down with myself and say, hey, punk, there's more. Well, what do you mean, less hair, overweight Mark? What do you mean there's more? I'm glad you asked, younger Mark, who's still exercising. I'd say, look, there's more freedom from sin than you're experiencing right now. There's more of the kingdom of God here and now. There is more love of God to encounter than you have even tasted. There's more power of God to flow through you. And let me tell you, Mark, 20-year-old Mark, when you're 40, you're going to see things you've never seen before. You couldn't imagine See, right now you're just reading them in the Gospels, in the book of Acts. They're going to happen right in front of you because of the Holy Spirit through you. And you don't even believe what I'm saying right now. But I'm telling you it's true. More of the Holy Spirit to experience. More healings. More miracles. More deliverance. More gifts. 
Mark, there's more. Well, how do we get there? Well, I'd say there's more than just incremental growth. There's more jumps from glory to glory in your relationship with Christ. And maybe a better way of saying it is there's more life-changing tipping points. What I've learned and what I've become passionate about is that there are these things called tipping points in the spiritual life. A tipping point is the point at which a series of small changes or incidents become significant enough to cause a larger, more important change. The Christian life is not just a bunch of small incremental changes. It is that, but those small incremental changes lead to a tipping point. And the best analogy I could come up with is at the beginning of June, we went to Hershey Park. And some of you, even at the Y, there's these little buckets up there in a cone shape, and they fill up a little bit at a time with water. Gradual process over time. But then what happens? Eventually, it gets filled to overflow, and it dumps out, and it's all at once. It's not gradual. I mean, if you stand under that big bucket up there at Hershey Park at, at what they call the East Coast Water Works, this is in their, uh, the water park at, at Hershey Park, that big bucket up there is not a small bucket. But it gradually gets filled up over time, and then if you're unfortunately a little kid, unaware, standing in its path, that thing will dump over you. That is a tipping point. And what I'm here to say to my younger self and to you is that there are tipping points. There is more to experience than gradual growth. There are tipping points you can experience that will launch you from glory to glory in your walk with the Lord. There's more. This is actually what Jesus said in John chapter 1. Starting in verse 43, he said, The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. Basically, Jesus says, look, you're impressed because I just gave you a word of knowledge. What's a word of knowledge? 1 Corinthians 12, Paul calls it one of the gifts of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 8. It's when you get a supernatural download from the Holy Spirit of information about somebody else. Jesus sees, he has a picture either in his mind's eye or he actually has a vision of Nathaniel under the fig tree. That's a word of knowledge. He's getting supernatural download about something he couldn't possibly know otherwise. Nathaniel walks up. He gives the word of knowledge. Nathaniel is blown away to the point where he went from total disbelief that Jesus was the Messiah to total belief that he's the Messiah. And Jesus is like, you did all that over a word of knowledge? Man, buckle up. You haven't seen anything yet. Do you know what Jesus is saying? He's looking at Nathaniel in the eye and he's saying, there is more. There's more. And there was more. Matthew 9 says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. So Nathaniel and the other disciples, they got to be a part of watching Jesus heal every disease and sickness. This is amazing. 
They get to be eyewitnesses to this stuff. In fact, here's some of the reactions to what Jesus did. In Matthew 8, 27, Jesus calms the storm. It says, and this is what the disciples did. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Matthew 9, 8, right after Jesus forgives the man, he's on the mat, he, he forgives him, and then he heals him. He's been paralyzed. The crowd saw this, and they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. And then Matthew 9, 33, Jesus cast out a demon. When the demon left, the man was healed physically. And it says the crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. They are dumbfounded with Jesus. They're overwhelmed by just watching the miracles happen in front of them. And Jesus says, there's more. There's more. Not only are you going to see miracles, disciples, I got one better for you. You're going to do miracles. You're not just going to sit back and be a spectator in this. You're not just going to watch me do miracles and heal people. I'm going to send you out. I'm going to give you my power and authority. I'm going to send you out, and you're actually, you're going to see it at the end of your hands. You're going to see it happen right in front of you. You're going to be the one that God uses to bring healing. Matthew 10, 5 through 8 says, These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And what are they supposed to do? Exactly what they saw Jesus do. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Did you catch that part? You've received it. You've experienced it. You sat back and watched it. Now I'm going to give you my authority. I'm going to give you my power. Now I want you to go give it away. There's more. Well, surely doing miracles was enough for the disciples, right? Not for Jesus. He looks at his disciples, his three best friends, Peter, James, and John, and he waves them over. He says, you guys are loving doing miracles, right? Healings, deliverance. He looks at them in the eye and he goes, hey guys, there's more. And he takes them up on a mountain and they experience the glory of God. Matthew 17, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up high, a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. And just then there appeared before him Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Guys, you thought it was amazing that you could cast out demons and heal people. Come with me on this mountain, and you're going to see Moses and Elijah. <laughs> what? And you're going to see me in my glorified form. Peter, Peter didn't know what to do. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters. You know, he's looking at James and John. They don't know what to do. He's like, let's build something. You know, he's one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was still speaking. And then it gets even better. As if it wasn't good enough, God the Father shows up to this party. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. <laughs> when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. I love that. They, they could almost handle Jesus transforming into his glorified state. They could almost handle seeing Moses and Elijah in their you know, glorified state. But when God the Father shows up, they're like, Okay, I'm tapping out. I'm done here. They didn't even see him. They just heard him. And they're like, yeah, boom, right on their face. You know, like, it's too much. The glory of God is too much. We can't handle it. 
They fell face down. It's not like they went, oh, gentle little fall. On their faces. Terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. It's just my dad. Don't be afraid. It's okay. It's just my dad. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Surely this is enough, Jesus. Surely hearing God the Father. Surely the glorified state of Jesus. Surely this is enough, right? You know what I'm about to say. Jesus looked at his disciples and said, guys, there is more. How can there be more? Well, he says the spirit of God is actually going to come and live in you. Inside you. He tells him about it in John 14 and John 16. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. He goes on to say, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Chapter 16, he says, unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Then he goes on to say, when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. The actual spirit of the living God will come and dwell in you. There is more. And that's exactly what happens. We see Jesus, he dies on the cross, he goes into the grave, three days later, he comes out of the grave, he meets the disciples in the upper room, and in John 20, 22, it says, and with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, and they received the Holy Spirit inside them. <sighs> Surely we're done now, right? Surely there's not any more than this. And honestly, for a long time in my Christian life, this is, what I, this is where I thought we stopped. We have the Spirit of God in us. And there is no more. And a few years ago, about five years ago, God came and rocked my world, and he tapped me on the shoulder, not literally, but he said, Mark, there's more. There's more. And I'd want to go over to my 20-year-old self, <clears throat> I'd want to tap him on the shoulder, and I'd want to say, hey man, there's more. And the more is that it's not just that we can have the Spirit of God in us, but we can have the Spirit of God upon us. These disciples that had received the Holy Spirit, Jesus then says this in Luke 24. He says, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Clothes are something we put upon us. The power that he was promising in the Holy Spirit was something that would be upon them. And then this happens, Acts chapter 2. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, it's like the Holy Spirit erupted both inside of them and came down upon them. It was like this eruption from inside of them and this descent upon them. And then when the two touched in the middle, there was this explosion. And the disciples were never the same after that. They were so filled with the Spirit. Peter spoke and 3,000 came to know Jesus that day. And without Jesus there, they healed the sick and cast out demons and saw miracles. Without Jesus there. Now surely this is enough, right? This. And Jesus, just because he's Jesus, says, well, there's more. There's more than this? Yeah, there's more. In Acts 4. The same people that were there in the upper room in Acts 2. It says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. The room itself was shaken. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Apparently, again, how does that happen? I don't know. But here we are again. There's more. God is eternal. The Holy Spirit is limitless. So there is more of him to experience. And there's more of our life to surrender. Are you, you're telling me you've surrendered everything? There's more to surrender. And there's more of the Holy Spirit. And when those two things meet together, our full surrender and more of him, when they come together in that moment, there's more. And they're filled again with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. I kind of liken it to this. Justification is a theological word for when you get saved, you are justified before God. You are made right in your relationship with him at salvation. Sanctification is a theological word that just means discipleship. It just means spiritual growth. It's the process of looking more and more like Jesus over time. Glorification is the theological word of you dying. I mean, theologians are amazing at coming up with words. But essentially, it's us dying and going to be forever and ever with the Lord in our glorified state. And to my 20-year-old self, you know, the disciples, they received the Spirit in John 20. And after that, this is kind of how I thought it went. And so if someone came up to me, my 20-year-old self, and said, hey, there's more, I'd go, yeah, I know there's more. And this is what I'd be talking about. I know that if I keep surrendering to the Lord and reading my Bible and going to church and following Jesus and obeying him and surrendering more of my life to him and engaging with the Holy Spirit. I know that there's more as I grow over time. And when I'm 80 years old, there will be more. I get that. But what I'd want to tell my 20-year-old self is, yes, that's true. But there's a truth that you're missing. And it's the tipping points. It's the glory to glory part. It's the event part. You've got the process part, but there are events that punctuate our life with Christ that when we have them, we never go back. We are never the same again. We see it with the disciples. They have this event that punctuated their process. They're filled with the Spirit, right? It's a spiritual tipping point. We see radical things that the disciples do after this point. Then there's a process, right? We continue the process of growth. Then Acts 4 comes. They have another radical encounter, another event, another tipping point. Then there's more process. So what I want to tell myself is, look, yes, there's more, but there's even more. There's encounters with the Lord that will happen to you right in the here and now that will radically change you. You will never be the same again. You will hunger for God like you've never hungered for him. You will long for him like you've never longed for him. Sin will look distasteful to you in light of God's glory. He will so fill you with the spirit that he's all you can think about. The power of God will flow through you in such that it actually affects your body. You will see people healed in front of you. You will see demons flee in front of you. Here and now, in your life, there's more. This is where I got that phrase. There's a book called There Is More by Randy Clark, and I recommend it if you are hungering for more in your spiritual life. I guess the way I want to say it is, I dare you to read this book. I dare you to read this book. Here's what he says. Periods of revival are characterized by people who believe the life they are living and the things the church is experiencing are beneath what is possible and available in God. 
This belief causes them to seek him for an impartation of more. And this is what happened in my life. God revealed himself to me in a way where it stirred up a hunger in me where I was no longer satisfied. I was dissatisfied. It was a holy discontent with the way my Christian life was going. There had to be more. And Jesus tapped me on the shoulder. He said, Mark, there is more if you want more. Randy Clark goes on to say, what exactly is the more? It's many things. More love for God and humankind. More power, more anointing, more joy, more burden of the Lord for the lost. More revelation from God regarding the needs of others. More conviction over sin, more faith in prayer. More conversions, more gifts, more healings, more deliverances, more churches planted, and more of the culture being leavened by the kingdom of God. It's multifaceted. The more is not just one thing. It's, it's the kingdom in its fullness. So how do I pursue the more? As I was processing through this, I just basically, I sat down and I said, what, what is the process that the Lord took me through? Like what? When I started really experiencing more than I ever thought I could experience, what is the process he took me through? And this is just a few. I'm going to give you 10 things. If you want to write them down. Recognize your need. That's, that's the part where you're like, man, my Christian life, I feel like I read the Gospels and I read the book of Acts and like my Christian life does not line up with that. And if that's you, then you're in a, you're in a great place. If, you, if you're in that place of holy discontent of like the Lord is calling you to more. That's where it began for me. And then I went into a season of repentance. I, for three months, I got to be honest, I, I had like bouts of just weeping in repentance. So be ready for that. God will, when he gives you more of himself, he'll reveal areas in your life that are full of sin. And it's painful, guys. It's like corrective surgery. It's like physical therapy. It's, it can be painful, but that's where repentance comes in. Three, humble yourself to the point of surrender. The Lord had to bring me to a place where I stopped fighting him mentally, intellectually. I just had to surrender my doubts. And I had to give him my yes. He kept kept waiting for me. He wasn't going to give me more than I could handle. And he knew I couldn't handle the more if I wasn't willing to say, God, I give you my yes. Whatever it takes, whatever you want to do. You have my yes. I've had a yes and a no up to this point in my Christian life, and I delete the no, and all I have left for you, God, is a yes. And that stirs up the hunger. Because even after that point, I wasn't really seeing anything in front of me. No one was getting healed, no deliverance, nothing. I wasn't seeing anything tangible in front of me. But I just knew there was a hunger inside of me where I was like, I, just, I know I need more of God. I know I need more of the kingdom here and now. And there was just a hunger And the Lord had to guide me into love. He had to keep reminding me, Mark, it's, it's not enough to have power without love. Power is a waste of time without love. So don't just pursue the power of God, pursue the love of God. If you want to look like Jesus, you're not just going to operate in power, you're going to be loving to the people around you. Purify your life. Again, this was part of that repentance process, surrendering more of my life to him. Forgive people and when possible, reconcile. God will highlight relationships that are broken. Repair those. Forgive people. 
Number eight, be willing to look foolish. And guys, this is where we got to lay down our pride. Because the Lord will do things. And he's not trying to embarrass you. He's not trying to make you look foolish. But in order to use you, he needs you detached from being so concerned what everyone else is thinking, what everyone else says about you. If you're so caught up in not looking like that Christian, you guys know what I'm talking about. I don't want to look like that kind of Christian. I want to be the cool kind that my neighbors like. I don't want to be that kind. That is italicized. Man, we, you got to let it go. That's pride, and you got to surrender it. You got to be who God's calling you to be. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to require of you sometimes to look foolish. And when I looked at this list, I'm like, oh, man, <laughs> Oh, I'm such an idiot. Jesus already said this. In fact, it's the first thing he said. The first words out of his mouth when he started teaching about the kingdom of God was this list in Matthew 5. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. When you're poor, you recognize your need. He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And there's all kinds of mourning, but one kind of mourning is when you grieve over your sin and your rebellion. It's a godly kind of mourning and grieving. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. We humble ourselves and become the meek one in the room. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. You want to be filled with more of the Spirit than hunger and thirst for righteousness. And God's promise to you is that you will be filled. But here's the thing I've learned. Some of us in the church are practicing uh, the discipline of fasting. Here's what I've learned. I was terrible, and probably still am terrible, at living in hunger. Like, you know Americans, we never live in hunger. Do you realize that? Do you realize that like three-fourths of the world regularly lives in hunger? Like their daily experience is experiencing at least a little bit of hunger pain. Do you remember the last time you experienced a hunger pain that wasn't immediately stamped out by a snack? Right? Americans, we don't know how to live in hunger. But what Jesus says is there's a way to live in hunger where you're also content. But we know nothing about that because we know nothing about hunger. Jesus says there's a way that you can be hungry for more of God and still be content and grateful. And let me tell you, one way to learn that is start fasting. And you'll begin to experience hunger and learn what it is to, to have day after day of hunger where you are also content. But we got to hunger for more if we want more. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy, right? Merciful, loving to the people around us. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. If you want to see God move in your life, holiness is a factor. We got to rid out the sin. I mean, Jesus didn't mess around. You know what Jesus said? We, we get so offended when people talk about purity. You know what Jesus said? He said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. That guy's crazy. If, you, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Dude, I, that, guy's, that guy's one of those Christians. Yeah, his name is Jesus, and he's the one we follow, and he was radical in his disdain for sin because he knew how much it hurt us. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. This is why forgiveness and reconciliation is so important. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the reality is people around the world are literally being sent to prison for their faith. They're being beaten for their faith. They're being killed for their faith. And we have people that make fun of us for our faith. Does that even count as real persecution? But even that's too much for us. Even that's too much for us. Guys, we have to be willing to look foolish or we'll never be the one that's willing to go to prison. Let me give you two more. This was Paul's advice to his protégés. Number nine, we have to learn from those who are experiencing the more. Philippians 4.9, Paul said, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. The way he said it to the Corinthians was this, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. In other words, Paul was saying, hey, churches, if you want to experience the more that I'm experiencing, do what I do. Learn from me. Follow my example as I'm following Jesus. And finally, number 10, receive impartation from those who are experiencing more. What is impartation? Well, we see it in Deuteronomy 34.9. Now, Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because... Moses had laid his hands on him. In other words, Moses was passing his mantle onto Joshua, and the way that he did it, the way Joshua got the spirit of wisdom, was he laid his hands on him, and he prayed for him that the thing was on Moses would get on Joshua. That's impartation. And I've been on the receiving end of this. I've had people that were experiencing way more than I have come and pray for me, and then I start experiencing more of what they experienced. It's a transfer of anointing. It's a transfer of gifts. This is how Paul said it to Timothy. 2 Timothy 1.6, he said, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you. How? Through the laying on of my hands. Paul went to his protege Timothy, laid hands on him, prayed for him. He said, God, everything that you've given me, give Timothy. And in every place in Timothy's life where he was ready to receive it, he got it. And any place he wasn't ready to receive it, he didn't. That's impartation. God wants to give you more of himself than you can even imagine. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, he can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, and it's his power working in us that does it. God wants you to have the more, even more than you want the more. Is that a confusing sentence? God wants you to have the more, more than you want it. Like, I want things for my kids even more than they want them right now. Do you know what I mean? Like, there are things that I so want for them, their desire for that hasn't even grown to my desire for that for them. That's how God feels about us as his children. But he loves you too much to crush you under the weight of his glory. He's not just going to dump it all on you if you're not ready. If your foundation is not set, if if the concrete for your house is not dried and set, he's not just going to dump a bunch of weight on you and watch you crush under the weight of it. He won't do that to you. He loves you too much. But what he will do is he'll stir up a hunger in you and he'll say, come, follow me. There's more. And as your house gets renovated, he gives you more, and he gives you more, and he gives you even more. We're going to close with a Braveheart clip. 
It's the only way I know how to close. So um, this is that scene in Braveheart where um, they've, they've done so much. They've done way beyond what anyone expected. And, and William Wallace goes in and he talks to the nobles. And so this is their, <laughs> this is their reaction. We have beaten the English, but they'll come back because you won't stand together. Well, what will you do? I will invade England and defeat the English on their own ground. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> invade? That's impossible. Why? Why is that impossible? You're so concerned with squabbling for the scraps from Longshank's table that you've missed your God-given right to something better. There's a difference between us. You think the people of this country exist to provide you with position. I think your position exists to provide those people with freedom. And I go to make sure that they have it. So I would want to say something similar to my 20-year-old self. And I feel like Jesus is saying something similar to the church today, to us today. And here's what I think it is. I have defeated the enemy, but he's still causing so much pain in this world because you won't stand together. Well, what will you do, Jesus? I will send you to invade the kingdom of darkness and defeat the enemy on his own ground. Heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. Invade? That's impossible. Is that not the response of the church? That was my response when I was 20. I've sent you to invade the enemy on his own ground. That's impossible. But I think Jesus' words would be, why? Why is that impossible? I'm the God of the impossible. You're so concerned with squabbling for the scraps from the enemy's table that you've missed your God-given right to something better, something more. I think he'd go on to say this. There's a difference between us. You think your salvation was given to you to provide you with position in the kingdom of God just so you could get to heaven. I think your position as sons and daughters in the kingdom exists to provide other people with freedom. And I send you in my name to make sure that they have it. I send you in my name to make sure that they have it. In fact, he said that in John 20. He said, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. I'm sending you to invade the kingdom of darkness on his own ground. And it's possible because there is more. There is more. If you want it, there's more. Let's pray. As always, if you have questions, you can text them into that number.
Jesus, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that you tapped me on the shoulder and you pursued me even when I wasn't pursuing you. And you came and you said, Mark, there is more. And you didn't have to, God. You didn't have to. You could have just left me. But you didn't. You refused to just leave me. And God, I'm so grateful that you did. Jesus, we want to live into the more that you have for us. And we just declare this morning that there is more of your kingdom available to us than we are experiencing right now. And God, when I am 60, I hope that I can look back and speak to my 40-year-old self and say, Mark, there was more. There was more than you even knew. And so, God, we ask for the more. We ask for the hunger for more. We ask that you break us out of our stale, monotonous Christian lives. And you set us ablaze with your fire. And you call us into more. And so for whatever that looks like, it's going to look different for every person in here. Lord, I pray that you would reveal that. Holy Spirit, that you would come and show what the more is, what the next step is for each one of us we'd be totally surrendered to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.